Let's read from God's word from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from home who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and make us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, said the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Tartara, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys 
of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. This is God's word. Thank you, Tian. And thank you again, Cross Culture, for your welcome. Now, if you've got a Bible or the Bible on an electronic device, I highly recommend you keep it open to Revelation uh, chapter 1. It's a great privilege for me to be back here at your 51st Global Missions Convention and a super to be opening up together God's Word in Revelation together this morning. Uh, as we approach the Lord's Word, let's pray and ask for His help uh, in this work. Heavenly Father, we gather in your presence. May your word shine your truth and your love into our hearts. May your spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, now, Sam has asked me to remind you that uh, there'll be a short Q&A at the end of this sermon. Uh, so a mobile phone number will come up on screen. Uh, please text your question as we go along to that mobile phone number and we'll, uh, someone will collect them and collect them and we'll attempt to get to them at the end of the sermon. Okay, well, what is, what is this last book of the Bible, Revelation? What is this Revelation? I wonder, I wonder what kind of reader you are, what kind of reader of books. Most people, when they read a book, right, they start at the beginning and they work their way in an orderly way to the end of the book. Now, I love a good murder mystery. You know how murder mysteries work? At the beginning of the book, someone is murdered. No one knows who did it. And as you go through the book, clues come up and suspects are eliminated. And there's always an interesting twist at the end. In a murder mystery, in a good one, it's never who you thought it was at the beginning. Now, I love rereading my favorite murder mysteries. Now, that might seem a bit strange because you already know who did it at the end. But in a good murder mystery, when you reread it, you get a better sense of all the stuff that happens in the book, don't you? Knowing who did it at the end makes the whole book deeper and more meaningful. Uh, it brings depth and meaning to every detail in the whole book when you read it again, the little things that the author put in. Uh, why, that's why she didn't say anything when that happened, or that's why he put down that cup when he left the room, etc., etc. Well, reading Revelation is a little bit like that. It's the final chapter of the whole book being the Bible. It tells us how the story ends, how, will God, how God will wrap up all of this portion of history, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, the doorstep of eternity, how Jesus will finally deal with Satan and sin and death in the final judgment, and what will happen to believers and unbelievers when God's glory is openly revealed at the end. Knowing the end of the story, dear friends, brings depth and meaning to the whole book. It enables us to reread the whole Bible with new lenses on. Well, that's my aim today. That's my aim actually for all of this week. My aim is to convince you that knowing the end of the book 
will cause you to give greater glory to God and go back through the whole Bible again and again with renewed passion, not just to read all the details in God's Word, but to live out God's Word in your lives, especially, of course, in your lives serving God's mission in God's world. I hope you're ready for the ride. Uh, we're going to launch into it soon. Uh, but immediately, there's a challenge with Revelation, uh, and it is that Revelation is in this genre of literature uh, called apocalyptic. It's, it's li literally in the first sentence in Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation, the apocalypsis, the apocalypse from Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not a common genre of literature for us today. It seems so weird. I love this story about a new believer who was encouraged to read the Bible and he went away, read the whole Bible. He came back to his pastor a couple of weeks later and said, the book was great, you know, all those stories about Moses in the Old Testament and Jesus in the Gospels. And then there was that fantastic science fiction ending. <laughs> well, uh, apocalyptic is just a little bit different. Uh, we see some apocalyptic in Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah in the Old Testament. And in the intertestamental books, there's a group of books that aren't in the Protestant Bible that were written between Old Testament and New Testament times. Uh, they are filled with apocalyptic literature. The word itself can mean revelation or disclosure or unveiling. The making clear to us human beings of spiritual and supernatural realities through highly symbolic visions. So in Ezekiel, you've got wheels within wheels, and Daniel's got four great beasts, and the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man, and Zechariah has lampstands and flying scrolls that are edible. You know, it's, it's not a style of literature that we're used to reading today. We just don't know how to read this stuff. And more importantly, we don't know how to extract meaning or authorial intent from it. The world we live in today, our world has become much more literalist, probably through the influence of science and technology and scientific mindset. You know, in our world, if it's not concrete and tangible, if A doesn't always equal B, uh, we just don't deal with that stuff very well. Most of us aren't used to this kind of writing, so we're going to have to pay super careful attention as we work through this book. But I promise you it will be worth it. Okay? It will be worth it. Because Revelation is also, and verse 2 tells us, please look at verse 2, Revelation is also the Word of God, that is, the very Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Maybe in a strange genre, but the very Word of God. Of God. Well, come with me to the text. Please open it in your Bibles or on your device. Uh, this revelation or this apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave Jesus to show his servants, that is, John and the seven churches of Asia Minor, of which we've read, and that is us today. We are his servants. What must soon take place? He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So as we come to Revelation, with all of its challenges, please make no mistake, we are coming to the very best part of the Bible, the end of the story, the fulfillment of all of God's great and eternal promises. We are coming to the climactic ending of the very Word of God 
itself. We are coming to the very testimony of Jesus Christ himself of things that must soon take place. Now, those are great reasons to get into this book. Well, come with me to this text. The first thing we learn from the text is who is this Jesus Christ who is speaking, verses 4 to 8. Verses 4 to 8 tell us three things about Jesus. If you're taking notes or you're following on the outline that you've downloaded, three things about Jesus. First, he is the creator God who is and who was and who is to come, verse 4, and repeated again in verse 8. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. That is, Jesus is God. It's how John's Gospel opens. If you remember John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing that has been made has been made apart from Him. Jesus is the Creator God. Second thing we learn about Jesus, from verses 4 to 8, Jesus is the loving Savior. Verse 5, look at it. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is, the Jesus of the Gospels who came proclaiming the kingdom of God is the faithful witness of the saving plan of God for all the peoples of the earth. That is why Jesus came. He came, remember, to proclaim the kingdom, to usher in that kingdom through his own precious death and resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead, we read. And his resurrection has a saving purpose for all the world, for he is also, we read, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Do you remember what uh, Psalm 2 prophesies about Jesus? It says, he will rule with an iron scepter and he will smash the rulers of the earth, like pottery. Jesus will come one day and execute perfect justice and bring to an end all the evil, despotic rule of the earth. Jesus is loving Savior, not just for individuals, not just for you and me, but for all the nations of the earth. And, and we only have to look at the news today to cry out for such a Savior, don't we? Third thing we learn from these verses about Jesus, Jesus is the soon and coming king. Verse 7, look at it. Look, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Please don't forget verse 1. This is a revelation of what must soon take place. Jesus will soon come. Recall what Jesus himself said in the Gospels. The day will come like a thief in the night. That is, suddenly, you know, you and I don't sit at home saying, oh, I wonder if the thief is coming tonight. No, no one does that. A thief in the night comes suddenly and unexpectedly. And Peter says uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, uh, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He will come, and then Peter says, remembering Jesus' words, he will come like a thief in the night. Who is this Jesus? Creator God, loving Savior, soon and coming King. Now, as we launch into this Global Missions Convention, the question for us is, for you and I, is do we know this Jesus? 
I really hope you do. I, I hope you're here today as someone who's placed their trust and hope in this Jesus, the soon and coming King. If you haven't yet, then today is a great day to begin that process. Please don't leave here without talking to someone. Ask them, how do I get to know this Jesus? Is all I heard and sang about this Jesus true? What must I do to get to know him? I guarantee that if you have that conversation, it will result in the most significant and important relationship of your life, a relationship with a loving saviour. You will not find a more loving or wise friend or more powerful saviour. Please come to this Jesus today if you haven't already. But wait, there's more first in this text. Who is this Jesus? Uh, from verse 9 to 20, Jesus is also the glorious one standing amongst the golden lampstands. Uh, verse 9 we read, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance at ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, here's a map of Patmos, I hope, coming up. You'll see that it's an island sitting somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. John, you see, the apostle, around the year 70 AD, was suffering persecution because of his Christian faith. And just like every other believer at the time, you know, th there was pressure on Christians, and John was on the island of Patmos, this kind of faraway place, possibly in exile or for his own safety. It was a Sunday, like today, the Lord's Day, verse 10. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now, here's a map of the seven churches. Uh, if you can see very clearly with better eyesight than I have, uh, you'll see that they are listed in a clockwise direction. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Theater, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now, in other words, this, this letter is a revelation of Jesus for John for these churches. Now, in apocalyptic, numbers are significant. We'll, we'll hear a lot about numbers in the course of this week. It's a bit like in Chinese culture, right? Numbers are important. How many of you have car number plates with eight in them? Please don't raise your hands. We don't really need to know. You know, the number seven in the Bible stands for completeness, wholeness. So the seven churches here, arranged in a lovely clockwise order, stand for the whole church of God throughout the world. You might ask, you know, where's the letter for Jerusalem or, or for Rome or for Galatia or for Corinth? We know there are Christians there. Why don't they get a letter? Well, they don't because the point here is that these churches, seven in a circle, represent every church throughout the world. And Jesus is standing, as we come back to Revelation, in the midst of them, right in the middle of their seven representative lampstands. Jesus stands at the center of the whole church throughout the world and throughout time itself. And he's dressed, verse 13, like a son of man, you remember from Daniel, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes blazing fire. Who is this Jesus? 
He's the son of man from Daniel. He's the king in a robe and a golden sash. He's divine and holy, white like wool, snow, eyes blazing, penetrating, all-seeing, all-powerful. His feet were like bronze, fiery. His voice like rushing waters. In his right hand, seven stars, one for each of the churches. And coming out of his mouth, a sharp, double-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, bone from marrow, discern the intentions of the human heart. It is the sword of the word of God, Hebrews 4.12. His face, like the sun, shining in all its brilliance, pure, holy, and divine. Shining, you remember like Moses' face was shining after he had seen the glory of God on Mount Sinai. See here, once, once you've read Revelation, you can go back through the Bible and you can, you can see what's happening with Moses, with Daniel in Hebrews. Knowing the details at the end made reading the whole so much richer and deeper. Verse 17, when John saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, just like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he encounters the living God. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death in Hades. Jesus is the one who died on the cross on Good Friday and was dead and buried. Jesus is the one who came alive on Easter Sunday and who is now alive forever. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead who has conquered sin and death and has power over death and hell. This is our great King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Worship Him. That's what John does. Now, who then are the servants of Christ to whom this letter is written? Who are his servants? The servants are, immediate answer, the seven churches arranged in that circle, the church of Christ throughout the first century. The original recipients of this book, this letter, this writing from God, from John. Uh, what do we know about the original recipients of this letter? Because it's a great principle of Bible interpretation, isn't it? That this, this word cannot mean something for us today that it did not mean for them, the original hearers of this letter. Well, what's the context of 70 AD, the first century? It was, of course, for the first Christians, the Greco-Roman world, uh, a world filled with a pantheon of gods with temple architecture and great marble statues that still stand today. Uh, please note with me this morning three aspects of the first century world. Three aspects of the first century world. If you're taking notes, here they are. Uh, first, emperor worship. It was a world in which religion and politics were inextricably linked, uh, much unlike our contemporary experience where we tend to de-link the two. Caesar was known as Lord and God. To be a good citizen was to worship Caesar, especially during the regular annual public festivals. Uh, in fact, some of the fiercest persecution that would soon come against Christians uh, was, came specifically because of their refusal to worship Caesar in public, alongside Jesus. Uh, in 70 AD, around the time of the writing of Revelation, there was probably localized 
pressure and persecution, but not yet the kind of widespread, horrendous persecution that was yet to come. See, faithful followers, faithful servants of Jesus in this time would worship Christ alone, no compromises, in a world where everything was about compromise. Second thing to notice about the first century world is uh, that idolatry was enmeshed in the business and professional world. Trade guilds or trade unions were a significant part of the first century economy. Uh, if you were a doctor, for example, you were in the doctor's guild, the shoemaker's guild, uh, the teacher's guild, and so on and so on. And every guild, every professional association had its own patron god, right? And if you were a doctor, you prayed to that patron god for success. And you had your annual gatherings and festivities where that god would be honoured and prayed to. How then were Christian doctors or shoemakers or teachers to behave? Would they or wouldn't they participate in the worship of those false gods? Could they or couldn't they stay in that trade union or professional organization? How would their business and work relationships be affected? Would these servants of Christ possibly compromise in order to stay employed and to stay in business? The pressure on them would have been incredible to give up their Christian distinctive. Emperor worship, idolatry in the business world, and the third aspect from the first century to note is this confluence of religion, people, and place. See, in the Roman world, there was a solid connection between a particular religion or deity and a particular people, ethnic group of people, and a particular place. The three went together. So you have Artemis of the Ephesians. If you were an Ephesian, you lived in Ephesus and you worship Artemis. That was it. Much like in uh, the world of my youth, if you are an ethnic Malay, uh, you probably lived in peninsular Malaysia and you were definitely a Muslim. And even though it's not true, the same kind of thinking in most of the majority world to which uh, we send our missionaries today is, goes something like this. Uh, if you are white, you're probably a Christian and you live in the West. Now, you and I know that's not true. For our first century brothers and sisters, though, it's, it was also not true. It, it stopped being true the moment any Ephesian or Corinthian or Galatian person stopped worshipping their local God and turned to Jesus Christ. Now, everyone around them would assume they were still like them. You know, you live in Ephesus, you look like an Ephesian, you must worship Artemis, right? But not true. They were now Christians the pressure on them to not worship Jesus and be like everyone else in their city, worship the same God, have the same idols, practice the same culture, follow the same value system, have the same morality, was immense. And the alternative was to be shunned and even persecuted. Now for all those reasons above, for those three reasons above, faithful servants of Christ in the first century became this incredible disruptive force, this incredible disturbance in society. And if you think about it for half a second, for strikingly similar reasons, faithful servants of Christ today 
remain an incredible disruptive force in our society today. Uh, we have, please make no mistake, so much more in common with the first century than we might first imagine. Now, we must try and draw these uh, threads together as we close. We are still in chapter 1 of Revelation. What is the Lord Jesus already beginning to reveal to us as we think on our team, theme of getting revved up for mission? We've already been thinking about the overarching concern of the book of Revelation. The revelation is for the servants of Jesus or things that must soon take place, right? And in their context, persecution and pressure are already present. Uh, John, in verse 9, we read, is their brother and companion in suffering and patient endurance. That's how he identifies himself. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. He can see from Patmos how across the Mediterranean world, pressure is rising. In fact, most of the book of Revelation will be all about that pressure rising and the persecution rising. And the Lord Jesus says, verse 19, Write therefore what you have seen both what is now and what will take place later. Terrible pressure and persecution alongside a glorious final victory. Well, their reality in the first century is our reality in the 21st century, isn't it? Everywhere in our context today, we can sense and see the pressure to water down our faith in this Jesus Christ crucified for the sins of the world, resurrected as the firstborn of the dead, the soon and coming king and judge of the rulers of the earth. You know, our world, Christmas, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, love your neighbor Jesus, social justice, love the poor Jesus, he's still acceptable and perfectly okay in wider society. But this Jesus of Revelation 1, coming on the clouds to execute justice, eyes blazing like fire, out of his mouth the piercing double-edged sword of the word of God, with the keys of death and hell in his hand to execute judgment. That, this Jesus, not so popular in our world. As the church in the first century received this letter from John, there were three possible audiences in their midst. Right, three possible people sitting in those house churches listening to this letter from John. Here they are, the faithful, the compromising, and the rebellious. First, the faithful. You know, those who stood with this Jesus and with John, those who were willing to suffer for their faith, those who were committed to following Jesus into mission into his world, to keep living for him, not worshipping any of those either idols or gods, to keep declaring his great and precious promises to all who would listen to hear, to see the Gentiles and the nations come in, the faithful. A second group were the compromising. Those sitting in those house churches who identified as Christians, maybe they called themselves disciples of Jesus, servants of Christ, but who sometimes watered down their following of the king. They thought it was okay, you know, what's wrong with worshipping Caesar on his feast day along with everyone else in the city? It's just what everyone's doing, it doesn't mean anything. They went along to their trade guilds and their professional organizations, and when the time came to pray to their professional deity for uh, success, they, they went along with the rest of their colleagues. They followed the service order. They didn't want to rock the boat. A bit of public religion here, a bit of private Jesus there, it's okay. Compromising their faith 
was the path they chose through life. It was just easier. No need to take Jesus all that seriously. Just be nice to people. We'll all work out in the end. The compromising. And the third group were the rebellious. Those who were all out not with Jesus, but they were still in those house churches, you know, perhaps listening to this letter being read. Perhaps they were friends or family or spouses who came along to the early house church meetings. Maybe they owned a house. The church just met there because their troublesome husband had become a Christian or something. They'd heard about Jesus, but they still lived in active rebellion against him. They did not acknowledge this Jesus of Revelation 1 as Lord, God, Savior, and King. Well then, those same three groups exist in the church today in the 21st century, don't they? The faithful, the compromising, and the rebellious. Maybe they are even in this space. How then should we respond? We've heard what the Word of God says about this Jesus, and here are three ways to respond today corresponding to these three groups of people, uh, but in reverse order. If you're here as someone who has not yet declared the Lord Jesus as Lord, God, Savior, soon and coming King, if you're in the rebellious group and you're still living in rebellion against God, then the word is repent. Repent. Jesus himself says in the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And repent just means turn around, change your mind about this Jesus. Today you've already heard of this Jesus whom the Bible reveals as God himself, the Son of God, slain for you and the world. This Jesus who calls every person to come to him in faith on the basis that he loves you. He loves you enough that he died for you. He loves you enough that he has a life full of meaning and purpose set aside for you. John's Gospel says his promise to us who follow him is life, life that is truly life. And all we need to do is repent, turn away from living as if we're the bosses of our own world. We get to dictate our own lives and turn instead to the true God and master of the entire universe, this Jesus Christ. Now, if you're ready in this moment, all you need to do is really simple. All you need to do is say, Lord Jesus, I'm ready. I want to turn to you. I want to hand my life over to you. I don't understand it all yet, but please show me the way. And then please talk to someone here at Cross Culture. Please tell them what you've done and what you've said to Jesus. They'd love to help you and encourage you along the way. And please tell me. I'd, I'd love to celebrate with you and pray with you. Repent. The second, if you're one here this morning and you're in that second group of people who are compromising or perhaps feeling it easy to compromise, then beware. The word is beware. As we go through the series, you'll see there's warning after warning after warning after warning in Revelation for people who compromise. Beware lest you lose your lampstand, chapter 2, verse 5. Beware, Satan is a liar and tempter and he's after your eternal soul. Don't be lukewarm in your faith. Jesus will spit you out, chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, those he loves, he will rebuke and discipline, chapter 3, verse 19, so that they heed the warning, beware, and come back to faithful worship and live, living for Jesus alone. Now, if that's you today, and you sense that in some area of your life, maybe in the last two years, they've been just weird years, you've been compromising, you've been less than 100% faithful to this Jesus, 
then I want to say to you, brother or sister, this, this is what church is for. This is what we are doing together as the Church of Christ. We, we come together to confess our sins to one another and to acknowledge our shortcomings and to talk about the real challenges we face to compromise in this world. Compromise that I face, that you face, and we pray for one another. We meet together, as Hebrews 10 says, to stir one another on towards love and good deeds. We don't let each other off the hook for following the Lord of Mission 100% wherever and however he leads. So the word is beware. And if you're in that third group of those living faithfully for the Lord Jesus, then the word to you is be encouraged. And, and I trust that that's the majority of us here today. If you're here today and you know full well the price you pay for following this Jesus today, then be encouraged. Verse 3 says, be blessed be blessed as you read aloud this book of Revelation. Be blessed as you hear it and be blessed as you take it to heart because the time is near. Be encouraged by this Jesus. He is the creator God, the loving savior, the soon and coming king. He has saved us and called us for a purpose to declare the glorious goodness of him who died and lives forever and who is coming soon to bring all things to their true end. Be encouraged. This Jesus is the Lord of mission. He is the one who gives and breathes life into his church that she might take his saving good news into all the world. You know, shall suffering or persecution or the first and earthly death dissuade his missionaries? Not for a moment. Not when we see clearly this Jesus who has conquered sin and death and who calls us to glorify him in this world and for eternity. So be encouraged. Be encouraged to follow Jesus today. And in fact, this week, as we work together carefully through the word of Revelation, be encouraged to follow him wherever he may lead. Amen. Well, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you and praise you for the revelation you gave to your servant John. We thank you that the end of all things is clear. You will come on the clouds and every eye will see you, even those who pierced you. And we will have just the most glorious reunion with all the saints to worship you whom we have served all our lives. So Lord, please encourage those of us who have stayed faithful. Please warn those of us who have compromised, who are being tempted to compromise. And Lord, if any here are in a position where they have not yet placed their trust in you, then please, Lord, help us to repent and receive from you grace upon grace, the gifts of your love and relationship with Jesus. We want to say yes to you this morning, Lord, and yes to you all of our lives. And we do this because you, you make it able so, Lord, uh, we commit ourselves to you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.